the new way we work from Fast Company Magazine, where we take listeners on a journey through the changing landscape of our work lives and explain exactly what we need to build the future we want. I'm Fast Company Deputy Editor, Kate Davis. Some things about workplace culture feel universal across industries, locations, and even across generations. Negative experiences with human resources is one of the biggest. The profession has a long history of being the butt of office jokes and much maligned in pop culture. As part of my last day, I'm training the new human resources rep in the ways of the company. Again, the company has allotted for this training one day. The root of the conflict between employees and human resources is the belief that the function exists not as the name suggests to be a resource for the humans that work for the company, but rather to protect the company from the liabilities presented by the people who work there. But a lot has changed about the HR industry and its role within companies since its inception around the time of the Industrial Revolution. Those first human resource roles were created around the idea of scientific management, which attempted to improve economic efficiency in manufacturing jobs. From there, human resource management evolved into what was sometimes called personnel administration, focused mostly on hiring, evaluating, and compensating employees. But as the needs of both companies and employees have evolved, human resources has grown to include roles overseeing compliance, harassment and bias training, diversity, equity, and inclusion responsibilities and goals, pandemic health and safety, remote and hybrid work policies, evolving attitudes and demands around benefits, and so much more. Once seen as out of touch and inefficient, the industry is now in the middle of some of the biggest workplace issues. That expansion can bring big challenges and opportunities. It's one field that isn't likely to see as much automation, and it's expected to grow by 10% over the next decade, attracting millennials and Gen Z employees who are likely to change the face of human resources even more. So what would a progressive, employee-centric human resource department look like? What roles would it contain? And is there a future where HR is no longer the butt of office jokes? You know, look, I think when you look at the ingredients of an HR organization people love, a team that is accessible, a team that is trustworthy and reliable, they do what they say they're going to do. They're going to listen. They're going to talk openly about the work, the business, the projects, what they're learning, where they're failing. That's Lars Smith. He's the founder of the HR consultancy Amplify, speaker, host of the Redefining Work podcast, author of the book Redefining HR, and a regular contributor to Fast Company. I started by asking him, bluntly, why HR so often sucks. So our staff writer, Pavithra Mohan, recently wrote an article that she interviewed you for with the headline, HR often sucks. Here's how it could be better. So let's start there. Why does HR so often suck? And why do people have such negative connotations with HR? Ah, you know, it's a, it, it's a painful but fair uh, headline to read. Look, I think when you look at the field of HR, we have a long history and legacy of a function that was rooted in compliance. That's where we got our start. In that start, it was all about compliance and risk aversion. And in you know being true to those things, I think we alienated a lot of employees and, and earned a lot of the reputation of policy cops or whatever it may be. But let's be honest, a big part of HR still does operate more in that 
transactional personnel kind of approach. But there's another part of the field that operates in a very different way. And so I think that those stigmas don't really apply as much to the new functions, um, but certainly they're well-established in the world of work based on based on our history. Yeah, and it's kind of hard to break away from them once it's so ingrained in the way that people kind of view work to be. Yeah. Because compliance is such a big part of it. Can human resources ever get away from that dichotomy that they're set up to protect the company rather than serve employees? I think that's a firm belief that a lot of people have. Is there kind of a different, more humane human resources way that it could be structured? Yeah. I mean, I think it's more about the mindset of the team and the leaders and kind of how they approach things. I think when you when you look at some of the best in class chief people officers out there right now, you know, they are seeing their role as balancing the needs of both the business and the employees. It's not one or the other. It's how do we bring both? How do we advocate for employees when we're designing policies and programs and making you know organizational decisions? Clearly, there's still a compliance piece to the role, but it's not as big of a driving force, I think, as it is in those practitioners in the leading edge. You know, I kind of look at the field of HR as a spectrum. Don't ask me for the data here. This is anecdotal. But, you know, the, the leading edge of the field, the, the real kind of elite HR and people teams, the ones that are integrated throughout the business, uh, there's no conversation about it at the seat of the table because they're there. They're trusted and relied upon for the value they bring to the strategic operations and ultimately the bottom line of the business. That's maybe 10%. You go to the other end of the spectrum, that old school legacy kind of transactional personnel, the the kind we're talking about, the stereotypes, that's probably 20%. And then I think there's about 70% in the middle who may be closer to one side or another based on a range of circumstances in their own organization, but they have the potential to move towards that leading edge. And so I think that in that leading edge, again, they're really focused on balancing both of those constituents. They don't really see it as an either or, they see it as a together and how do they manage both of them uh, in an equal way. So maybe my next question gets into this. And if it doesn't, let's dig into that more of how you get that 70% in the middle over to that 10% area you want to be in. But but what I wanted to ask was kind of one of the issues that we see with HR is that at a lot of companies, it becomes kind of a catch-all for so many different types <laughs> of roles from like payroll and benefits and compliance and health and safety, and then like recruiting and retention and DEI and like all of these different functions. Is there a way that companies should think about those functions differently, a way to kind of structure things differently? There's been a lot of talk about should DEI roles sit in the C-suite? What roles should report directly to the CEO? Are companies just kind of thinking about HR wrong? And would that help solve some of the issues? Yeah. I mean, look, I think there's a couple things there. I mean, one, I think that if you look at how the field has evolved over the last three years, right? And, you know, since the pandemic and beyond, you know, clearly it's been elevated to a place where in that broader pool of HR, it hadn't been. And so there's more of a spotlight on the work and the output and the contributions to the business, I think, for the function beyond just the administrative, hey, make sure people have benefits, make sure people get paid. So that is one of the things that is shifting. And I think when you look at HR teams today, you know, there's a lot of conversations around what we call ourselves. Is it HR? Is it people operations? Is it talent and culture? Is it human capital, which it shouldn't be. That's my least favorite. That's my least favorite too. I'm so glad you, you pointed that out. human capital. They don't want to be, I mean, look, that's that's not something anybody wants to be. Just like, the, just like humans don't want to be resources though. I mean, let's be honest yeah. about that too, right? So I think that when you look at companies and how they're designed today, one of the things that I think to me is one of the biggest transformative shifts 
in the field of HR over the last couple of years is that it's no longer an insular field. Historically, HR was a place where you would come into as an associate, you would be promoted to a senior, and then a manager, then a director, but you basically spent your career in HR. And there wasn't a lot of mobility inside and outside of the function. That's definitely not the case today. There's a lot of people moving into the field from design, sales, marketing, IT, data science, you know, different functions that historically had nothing to do with HR. Now they have lots of those types of skill sets and dispositions in the field. So I think we're thinking about the work differently. We're not just thinking about the work and the structure from a quote-unquote HR perspective. We have different viewpoints and perspectives that I think are bringing a much richer look at how we think about the field, even bringing product management principles into designing HR systems, right, that before had never really been the case. And that's interesting. And I don't think that's something that I've seen covered very much that people from different functions of a business are are starting to go into HR. One, I guess, why and how are they seeing those skills as transferable? And two, is HR as a department, whether or not you call it people and culture or whatever, is that as a department, should that not exist? And should there be some sort of other way that it exists? Because it does seem like things like payroll and benefits has little to do with things like diversity, equity, and inclusion goals. Yeah, I mean, look, I think you can certainly separate those things out. I I think ultimately, though, you need to have kind of a holistic view of all things people, right? And that includes the, the core HR, you know, payroll, benefits, employee relations type stuff, the talent management side of HR, recruiting, promotions, development, performance, L&D, the DEIB certainly has to be a part of that equation. But I think if you start to segment them out, they become less connected and maybe a bit more disjointed. And then you don't really know how the work that you're doing in one side impacts the other areas. And so certainly you could break those apart. I've seen that, you know, you usually see that more with recruiting where they, some companies, especially startups might pull recruiting out and have a report to the CEO. But I think to your first question about the influx of different roles, to me, I think the chief people officer role is one of the most difficult roles in the C-suite. And it's because you don't just have to have your, your domain expertise. It's not just about HR acumen. You have to have a true business acumen. And in that, you have to really understand your peers in the C-suite's roles and worlds in ways that no other peer has to know your world, even though many think they do. Everybody has an opinion on HR, but I think you have to really understand the financials like a CFO. You have to understand the go-to-market strategy like a CRO. You have to understand the market positioning and competitive threats like a CMO. And then you also have to connect the organizational strategy, your people strategy synthesize all of those things and connect them also with the organizational strategy while you're managing your company's most volatile asset, which is your people. It's an incredibly complex job and it really has elevated the importance of business acumen. And so I think that's why you're seeing more CPOs actually coming into that role from other areas of the business because they know the business, they have the business acumen down and they at least have hopefully an interest in people, but they're going to have the team around them that's going to help them really have more of a business-driven impact. And so I think with that career path, if they aspire to be a CPO, they're taking tours of duty inside the business as operators with the intent of coming back with the knowledge and experience they're gaining as an operator and ultimately as a customer of HR back into the role leading the function. Do you find then if people in those roles need all of those skills that you mentioned and then you said, and hopefully they have people skills as well, do you find that that's a missing piece sometimes in HR and part of maybe why 
the negative connotations is that it is because, you know, it had the reputation of it's just there to protect the company, of people in these functions not kind of having the people skills. We write a lot about people getting promoted to be managers and not ever really having management skills. Is that kind of a piece that gets forgotten? Yeah, you know, I think you find less of that in HR than maybe in other functions because engineering, for example, software engineering, IT, like cap out at a certain level of seniority as an individual contributor and you're forced to go into management to develop your career. And even though you have zero interest in managing people, and that is a real issue and that happens a lot. And you've obviously covered a lot of that. I think on the HR side, I mean, generally, if you work in HR, you probably have at least an inclination towards people. You probably, you know, you, you might not be the most gregarious people person in the world, but you probably don't hate people. So that, that's kind of a step one. But I think when you look at the people moving in from other areas of the business, it's interesting. You know, I talk to a lot of them on my podcast. I always ask them, what surprised them about the function kind of moving from a customer of HR to somebody running the function? And I think to a person, they all just didn't understand the complexity of it. So I think that they understand that there is a learning curve in getting up to speed, but they're also infusing new ideas. You know, look at a company like the Lego Group. You know, they brought over Lauren I. Schuster from the commercial side of the business to run HR while also continuing to run corporate affairs. You know, I had a conversation with him and he talked about coming more from a marketing background and wanting to roll out a program and having the response, well, it's the six month testing program and piloting. And he's like, no, 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 we've got to get this out. And so this idea of like ship it, measure it, adjust it, and iterate, I think those types of product and marketing sensibilities moving into HR with these new skill sets coming in allows us to just develop things much more quickly, pilot things, uh, you know, again, getting back to that, those risk aversion roots, that wasn't really our DNA, right? We wanted to be super safe with everything we launched and it took us forever. And especially in the world we're in right now, that's changing so rapidly it could be a different world by the time we roll out a thing in that traditional vetting and, and process that takes place. Would your advice then getting back to that 70% that is in the middle, how do those folks get to that better kind of 10%? And what does a humane human resources look like where people kind of have a good relationship with it? Yeah, so I think to the, the first question, what's great about this kind of moment in time that we're in in HR, and this has been you know heading in this direction since 2015, is HR used to be a very siloed function. You know, we were brought up under this war for talent mantra that you know we couldn't share. All of our practices were trade secrets, and it made it really hard to learn. It made it really hard to understand what other people were doing. That's not the case anymore. You know, open source has completely revolutionized the field of HR where many more organizations and leaders and CPOs are sharing their practices and sharing their work. So if you're in one of those organizations in that 70% middle, there are so many resources, free resources, paid resources, communities, et cetera, that you can plug into to really help you understand what great employee experience or what great DEIB or what great recruiting looks like. And it's not that you're going to latch on to a best practice and necessarily roll that out at your organization. Like I don't ever use the term best practices because to me, there's so much subjectivity that goes into why that practice is successful at a specific company that nobody else can match. But you can learn from what they're doing and you can emulate parts of it that works. Let's say you're closer to the 20% right? You have a, a CEO that never expects anything beyond administrative support from an HR. You're going to be capped there in terms of the impact you can have in your business, but you're not going to be capped in terms of the growth you can have as an individual by plugging into all these different learning networks that are out there 
you can still accelerate your career, even if you're not able to necessarily practice some of that work now. And then hopefully you go somewhere else and you can do that. I think it comes in both ways. And then the second part of your question, I'm going to have to have you retell me the second part of the question. I'm sorry. <laughs> Just like kind of paint a picture of what a HR department that employees love looks like. This is not exactly what I had asked, but that's yeah. what I'm asking now. <laughs> that's what you're asking now. Okay, I will give you that answer then. You know, look, I think when you look at the ingredients of an HR organization people love, a team that is accessible, a team that is trustworthy and reliable, they do what they say they're going to do. They're going to listen. They're going to talk openly about the work, the business, the projects, what they're learning, where they're failing. I often interview chief people officers and CHROs in my podcast, and I think prior to the pandemic, there was a certain veneer that came with executives. And this isn't just HR executives. This is all HR. You, know, you, had to be, you had to be infallible. You had to be buttoned up. You had to be polished. You had to say the right things. You had to do the right things. And that wasn't real, A, but it's also not relatable to employees. And I think, again, looking at some of those companies that have HR teams that are really respected, they have people leaders who are able to be really relatable to their employees. You know, I've talked to CPOs who've talked about, you know, rolling out a new fertility benefit plan to the organization. And they talked about their own individual struggles with fertility. I've talked with CPOs who talked about rolling out mental health support programs. And they shared openly in a town hall about their own battles with depression and even suicidal ideation. You know, and, and able to have the, just be vulnerable and be real. I mean, we've all been, you know, we're not been through, pandemic's not over, but we're all in this place where we've been in each other's homes We've seen each other cry. And I think this humanness of the people in the function and their ability to relate to their employees and be open and real with them, I think that goes a long way to earn trust. But you also have to deliver on the things you say you're going to do. So that's another piece that is, is really important is, you know, we talk about employee surveys and things like that. Well, it's great to get feedback on what employees want, but if you don't do anything with it, if you don't act on it, if you don't share progress or say, hey, you know what? We know you really want to do this thing, but we can't. And here's why. Those are the things that help HR teams connect with their employees and build that trust. Because the trust is really the currency of that relationship. I think you're so right. And especially about the vulnerability and admitting mistakes and following through when you can't do something. Because as you were speaking, I was thinking one of the things that I think employees butt up against with HR is a lack of transparency. Yeah. And especially when you're talking about things like compensation and hiring and promotions, there's just so much that employees aren't told or don't know. And then that helps build a lot of mistrust. So yeah, what's your opinion on the transparency issue with HR? Yeah, I mean, look, let's be honest. I mean, with lack of clear information, you're not getting the benefit of the doubt. You're just not. Because I think, again, there is that inherent mistrust that I think that does tend to happen when you think about HR that isn't open and transparent. Especially we're entering this new age of pay transparency, right? And there's uh, you know laws in the books and a range of states across the U.S. that require more transparency in job postings. I've been advocating for that for years. And I think that companies that struggle with that you know, I've never really understood. I, I've always asked people to give me a solid business case as to why you wouldn't be open about, you know, again, not to say specifically you make exactly this much money, but why not be able to talk about a range on a job posting? And I've never heard a satisfying answer to that question. And like, yes, there's internal equity issues. Yes, there's uh, pay inequity issues. But like, use this moment to shine a spotlight on that and address that and talk openly. And so I think it'll be really interesting in the coming weeks and months, especially for U.S.-based companies, 
that are grappling with pay transparency and have to roll out these plans, how they handle that internally in a very open and transparent way. Because you have a lot of factors behind that. You know, we're in this period now of economic uncertainty, but it wasn't long ago that we were in a period called the Great Resignation and you couldn't hire people fast enough. And it blew up comp bans, especially in tech, where companies just had to overpay to be competitive. And obviously they didn't match that internally when they did that. And so now that's being a bit more exposed. They've got to figure that out, but they've got to just be honest about like, explain that, hey, we are hiring in a hugely competitive hiring market. And to get the talent we needed to move the business forward, we had to pay a market premium based on what it was. Yes, that's an anomaly. And yes, that is not in line with where you are. And here's what we're doing to address that. And it may not happen tomorrow. It might be a six-month plan. It might be a 12-month plan. But we recognize that. Let's call it out. And let's talk about what we're doing. Like Companies can have that conversation. There's no reason not to. But when you don't, you're right. People will assume bad intent. And they assume that you know all the, all the negative thoughts that come with lack of clarity. Honestly, there is kind of bad intent if you know that there's a pay discrepancy and you're not addressing it. And and you're right. Even if it is you're addressing it saying, I can't do anything about it right now, but here's the plan that we have to address it goes such a long way because at least you're acknowledging it and not covering it up and pretending it doesn't exist. Right, right. We wrote recently that more young people are going into human resources, which on the surface kind of runs counter to everything we were just talking about with the kind of out of touch, humorless reputation that HR has historically (laughs) had. Obviously, things are shifting, but I was kind of surprised to learn that young people, college students would find HR as an attractive field. Is it because the role is, is expanding and it touches all of these new elements? What is appealing to young people to go into this field? Yeah, look, Kate, I'm telling you, HR is a destination. No, but <laughs> You're I mean, going to change think... everybody's mind. About, I mean, that's kind of the purpose <laughs> of this, right? Yeah. I'm single-handedly out to uh, rebrand HR this podcast. No, I, I think when you look at the function of HR is so multifaceted now, right? Like, you're interested in data science? Great. There's a spot for you in HR. Like, you're passionate about equity and inclusion? There's definitely a spot for you in HR. You want to learn about you know recruiting and building relationships? Certainly. You want to use AI tools, right? We haven't even touched AI yet. That's going to completely impact everything in HR over the next you know several months, not years. And so there's so many different types of opportunities and types of roles. You know, I understand why it would be interesting. And it's also, you know, there's certain areas that are highly technical, but there are many areas that aren't, right? So it's not like you want to be an accountant and you have to become a CPA, and there's like very niche-specific education that you need to be able to do that role. There are certainly continuing education that's helpful in HR, and there are some fields you couldn't be a data science without that type of background. But there are many roles that you can move into, and you can even move across different roles. And I think also younger generations are thinking about their careers less of ladders and more like lattices. And you know, HR is definitely a function where it's fairly easy to move vertically or laterally. There's lots of transferable skills in the different roles that allow you to have more growth and more mobility, which I I know is important to, you know, it's important to all generations, but certainly younger generations. So kind of related to that, and, you know, as I was thinking about why are more young people interested in going into HR, I started to think about what we've been covering that Gen Z is important to them in the world of work. So I would love to hear from you. You know, we cover a lot about how Gen Z is changing the workplace. 
How do you think millennials kind of moving into management positions or already in management positions and Gen Z kind of coming in and entering the workforce will change both the field of HR and what employees expect from HR? It's interesting. I think LinkedIn recently dropped their 2023 talent trends report and it talked about hiring, but it also talked about mobility, internal mobility from a generational standpoint. And pretty surprisingly to me, Gen X was actually the top generational demographic for career mobility over the last year, followed by millennials and Gen Z and you know boomers, you know, we're we're pretty far behind. I think when you look at the sensibilities, you know, Gen X and I'm, you know, Gen X, like I remember before the internet. You know, I remember not having access to every bit of information at my fingertips uh, on demand, right? And these younger generations don't. They kind of grew up with the ability to be connected. The, the world was a much more flat and connected space for them. The sensibilities, I think, support that. And so I think creating organizations that are really people-centric, right, in terms of their policies, in terms of their leaning, in terms of their programs, how they think about attracting talent, developing talent, retaining talent, embedding inclusion throughout every aspect of the organizational systems. You know, those are things that are definitely front of mind. Uh, And I think that's great. I think that's going to make the industry, make our field better, make it more inclusive, make it more just aligned with the world that we're operating in today. Research has shown that more people in Gen Z and in, you know, millennial generations want their companies to kind of live their values. And it does kind of seem like human resources is a place that you can kind of start to channel that, like make the meaningful change at the company. Yeah, no, it's interesting. I think uh, I agree with that. But I think there's also been so many flashpoints over the last three years that have been deeply, deeply impacting employees across the spectrum. And I think it's been a difficult role, I think, for HR, particularly for leaders, because in almost every one of those scenarios, you'll have employees that feel a certain way and they want your organization to take a stance. And for some organizations, they do. That is aligned with their mission and their values. And, you know, it's very easy for them to kind of step into that space because they've earned that respect. It's like Ben and Jerry's comes out with an anti-racist pledge. Like that is not performative. Like they've been in that space for years and people know and, and they're trusted as an advocate there. I think for CPOs specifically, I think it has been difficult for them because they may have deep personal views on a situation, but they may have worked for a company that as a company, their policy is not to speak publicly on those scenarios. And so I think that it's been, you know, certainly in some of these flashpoints, it's been a real struggle for leaders to feel comfortable voicing their own experience, their lived experience, their, their, their personal views as a human, while having to somewhat constrict those as an executive officer of a company. You know, and so that, that is something I definitely agree with you, but I, but I would add that kind of nuance to it that I think at the leadership role, um, those moments uh, have been and can be very difficult. I do know that LinkedIn, for example, now has the feature where you can filter companies by their values. And I know that yeah. those generations are looking to not get in that exact position that you just described, where they are aligning themselves with companies that align with their with their values. Yeah, absolutely. So you wanted to talk about AI. Don't worry, I have it here. <laughs> uh, so you've written a story for Fast Company at the end of the year uh, for the last four years, predicting the ways that HR will change in the next year. So within those predictions, obviously, there were things that you did not see coming, that you could not see coming, that none of us (laughs) saw coming, like the pandemic and the shift to remote work and the great resignation, like those things, you know, 
we're very unexpected. So knowing that there's a lot we can't predict, how do you think the field of HR, you know, I was going to say will change in the next five years, but I think you kind of want to talk also about the immediate changes that are coming. But but I'd love to be able to look a little further down the field to what's going to happen. In HR, we've been talking about AI for years. Like the topic of AI isn't new. HR tech vendors have been touting AI for years. Was it always AI? Yeah, I'm not so sure. But I think what's really different this time around, and it started with ChatGPT's release and I think it was November of last year, this new consumer grade level of AI and generative AI is revolutionary. Of course, like all the HR tech vendors are jumping in. Hey, now we're going to be able to do this. And like, you know, they'll get there. The startups will probably get there quicker. But I think as an individual, as, as an HR manager, as an HR business partner, right, as a recruiter, if I understand how to use some of these tools effectively now, that's going to 10x my capability. I mean, maybe 10x is dramatic, but that's going to definitely increase the contributions and the impact that I'm able to bring to my organization today, right? And so, I mean, you know, zero in on ChatGPT for a moment. If I'm working on revamping our career site to reflect our new mission, vision, and values, is it going to be turnkey? Like, you're going to plug that into ChatGPT and then automatically just cut and paste that in your career site? No, but it's going to give you a running start. And you can apply that to so many different use cases. And so I'm just so bullish on the potential for these tools to really augment our ability and enhance our ability to make an impact. And I think those of us that are making time to experiment with them now and learn about them now and figure out use cases for them now, we're going to be at such an advantage to those who are just, you know, heads down in the work and kind of hearing about this and being like, ah, this is just a fad. And I've got to go back to my work. And like, you're all busy. I get it. You've, you've got to go back to your work. But you've got to make time to learn these types of things, to at least spend some time and be curious. Because if you're not, you're going to be at a huge disadvantage as an individual. If you're up against a role or with somebody else and they have mastered some of these tools and they can demonstrate that in the interview process or through work samples or through their track record and their previous company, that's just going to be a huge advantage that it's going to be tough to to narrow. So for things like that example that you gave, it does make a lot of sense. And we've, you know, we've covered that a lot. It's a good starting place for, for writing something and then, you know, going from there. But so much of human resources is humans, right? It's in people yep. skills. And we've also written about how AI is only as good as the information that's out there. And the information that's out there is in a lot of cases really biased and that it has yep. the potential to exacerbate that kind of bias that has already been there, that we see that in like the applicant tracking automatic systems for resumes and that it's, you know, the ways that it screens things. What are kind of some ways that HR will change in the future that HR can't touch or that are uniquely human? Or what else should people be thinking about in the slightly longer term maybe of the future of HR? Yeah, I mean, let, let's let's um, kind of look at that question through the the lens of recruiting, right? You know, recruiting, the way that it happens today is really not that different than the way it happened 20, 30 years ago, which is digital instead of, you know, newspaper ads and fax machines. But I think when you look at how we're going to use, I mean, right now, recruiters are spending a lot of time, you know, sourcing candidates, going out and trying to find candidates that are fit for role, reviewing applications that are inbound creating more top of funnel awareness for the company and even in some cases you know sourcing is a function that is a tool that now there are so many great ai tools that can automate that and just pull in a list you know scour the open web linkedin wherever else 
and give you a somewhat pre-vetted list of candidates that you can reach out to. And there's some tools that can even say, okay, now to create a personalized outreach message to these individuals. And it will. And, and now that's like something that somebody, a recruiter has been doing manual research, you know, in the past and maybe spending 10 minutes finding some connective tissue with a candidate so they could reach out with something more than just the generic, I'm a recruiter from X company and I have this. Like, so you have a way to actually show that you've done a bit of homework. That can all be automated now. So now as a recruiter, it's allowing me to spend more time getting on the phone with a candidate, having a conversation, understanding their drivers, understanding how they align with my role, you know, sharing the story of my opportunity and helping them understand how that connects or not with what they would want to do. But the manual task, you know, scheduling interviews, things like that, you can use tools now to automate that. You don't have to do that anymore. So it's not that you're not going to have those opportunities. It's just that you're going to be able to use tools to do more of the non-human aspects of those deeper activities and events. Yeah. You know, that honestly seems like a theme from everybody that I've been talking to about how AI will change our work is that it frees you up from the kind of mundane tasks and gives you more time to actually have those human interactions and build those relationships, which theoretically is what HR is supposed to all be about, right? Yeah. I mean, that should be our strength. So I'm excited about it. With any new revolutionary technology, like there's always uncertainty. And yes, AI certainly has uncertainty and there's lots of questions around the future of you know, how the platform will evolve and how easily we let it evolve and where it goes if we don't have any regulations. I think that's a separate conversation, but I think specifically for practitioners in HR, this is a tool that will help us and it will allow us to uh, really focus on the human side of what we do and get out of the manual, administrative, non-high mental capacity work that we are doing today that we really don't need to be doing. Yeah, agreed. Well, you know, I don't know if we've changed everybody's mind about HR, but (laughs) I certainly feel more optimistic after talking to you. I think the industry seems to be moving in the right direction and it does feel really optimistic and hopeful, especially with this younger generation being interested in taking on this role. Yeah, look, I'm excited. I think there's this real duality in this moment for the field where, you know, my view at a macro level, there's never been a better time to work in HR because of all the opportunities that are in front of us. Also acknowledging that there's never been a more difficult time to work in HR given, you know, all of the events of the last three years and the things that we continue to have to navigate and struggle and, you know, managing burnout and all those things that are very real. So there's a real duality to the moment, but I think that we're going to come out of this a much better function, a much more sophisticated, a much more empathetic function. And I'm really excited about the days ahead. I think that's a great way to put it. It's never been a a better time or a more difficult time, which is probably going to attract, you know, the most ambitious and eager folks out there. So yes, I do feel, I do feel optimistic. Lars, thank you so much for being here. Yeah, Kate, thanks for having me. And that's all for this episode. If you're a new listener, be sure to subscribe to The New Way We Work wherever you listen. And if you like this episode, leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. And we want to hear from you. Work is changing every day. What's the most pressing issue on your mind? Email us at podcast at fastcompany.com or tweet us with the hashtag The New Way We Work. The New Way We Work is produced by Joshua Christensen and Julia Shu with editing by Nicholas Torres. 